names. I'm very bad with names. I really am. I'm, I'm sure you've heard me saying this before. I can never remember people's names. And, it's, and it, when I was working in the civil service, I developed a wee scheme that every person that I would meet was, all right, mate, what about you? Because I could never remember their names at all. It was never, hiya, John, or hiya, I was always, all right, mate. And people seemed to accept that. I was really bad with names. And I'll give you, an, some of you may know this story, but I'm going to tell you again. This is the best example of me not remembering names. My wife, some of you might know her, the caller Denise, that's very important, the caller Denise, the do caller Denise. But when we were 20 years married, we decided we'd go for a second honeymoon. And the first night we were there, oh sorry, just before that, a few weeks before that, she had had her handbag stolen at work. And she used to wake up in the middle of the night and just sit up right in bed and go, where's my handbag? Every night, scared the life out of me. I actually thought she was trying to claim off the insurance. But <laughs> we were first night on our honeymoon, middle of the night, up she sits in bed, where's my honey, where's my bag? Where's my purse? And I said, it's all right, Deidre, calm down. Do you know what the most amazing thing about it is? That was 20 years ago and we're still married. <laughs> but I really am bad with names. And during an interview, there was a woman was asked to give her name. And she replied that her name was Lily. And the guy said, that's a lovely name. Why did they call you Lily? And she said, well, actually, when they were pushing me out of hospital, a lily leaf fell into the pram as they were pushing me out. And they decided to call me Lily. A couple of days later, the, bo the, um, the boss interviewed a man for the same job, and he said to the guy, same thing, what's your name? And he said, my name's Skip. <laughs> he wasn't much to look at, this guy. He had a very rough appearance, and that's maybe self-explanatory. You know, names are important to us because they often do more than just identify an individual. They can actually reveal who a person is what he or she is like. And God goes by many different names in the Bible. One commentator has counted over 63 different names in Scripture. Now, that seems like a lot of names for God, but, but really it's not because God is so awesome that the number of names we could use to describe him is as endless as he is. And these names provide us with at least two helpful insights, two helpful truths. They help us identify the one true God. You see, the pagans, the pagan nations worshiped many gods with a small g. And so one reason that God gave us his names is so we can know how he is different. You see, his name describes his character. And when we study what he goes by, we will actually get to know what he is like. And while names are important in our culture, they were even more so in biblical times. Proverbs 22, 1 tells us that a good name is more to be desired than great riches. Names just don't distinguish or label a person. They were often thought to reveal the very nature of that individual. For example, Nabal in the Bible, N-A-B-A-L, Nabal, his name means fool. And it lived out, he lived out what his name meant. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 25, it says, he's just like his name. His name is full, and folly goes with him. 
The term for the name in the Old Testament means an individual mark and communicated an individual's essence, the very, the very essence of the being. In the New Testament, the, name for, the word for name comes from the word that means to know. To know God, to know the names of God means to personally know his personality. <coughs> it's my prayer that we, that we just won't know who God is, that we will actually get to know him much than we do right now. I'm going to put a sweet in the mouth, hope you don't mind. I've got a very dry throat, and this is going to keep my mouth from drying up. And if anybody wants one, that's the only one I have. <laughs> the names are given by God. They're not given by man. They weren't just thought up by people. God is not some abstract thought or nameless power. He's a personable and knowable. And one, way, one of the ways his personality is known is through the giving of his names. Each name of God reveals one of his qualities or his characteristics. These names were given to God's people in order to help them through a moment of need. And the names are like miniature portraits filled with promises given by God as a gift to us so we can actually get to know him. And this week I saw someone that I knew really well and I called out her name. Uh, I got it wrong. I called, her, I called her out a shortened version of her name and she quickly put me wrong, put me, uh, told me I was wrong, put me right. So I, made, I must, I'll never make that same mistake again. And you know, God has so, some strong feelings about how we, how we call him and how he goes by as well. And he doesn't want us to use names that are too casual or even commonplace. I'm sure he's not really impressed when we refer to him as the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs. He has wanted the trouble of giving us names that reflect him, and he doesn't like us using slang names for him. And we learn in Genesis, the first name that he wants to be called by, in Genesis 1 verse 1, is Elohim. Elohim. He is creative. What it means is he's creatively powerful. He's completely sovereign, and he's gloriously and great because of who he is. That's what that name means. And we can draw four conclusions from that name. The first is he is eternal. Therefore, his existence is established. Secondly, creation is correct. Evolution is an error. The Trinity is true. Therefore, redemption can be received. And fourthly, Every person has a purpose. Therefore, the preborn must be protected. But the name we're going to look at today is Adonai. And it's used over 300 times in the Old Testament. It's a bit difficult to see in our English Bibles because many translations to use two different renderings of the same name to make a distinction between Elohim and Adonai. When Adonai is used of God, it's almost, it's almost always plural, like the name Elohim. This name also supports the doctrine of the Trinity. And in order to help us to capture the meaning of Adonai, let's turn to the world of pets for a few moments. How many of you have dogs? Put your hands up. How many of you have cats? Put your hands up. 
How many of you have dogs and cats? There'll be, there'll be people to help you with that problem at the end of the service. They'll just be outside and they'll talk to you there. You know, it's very interesting because a dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, and you love me. You must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, and you love me. I must be God. <laughs> and a funny way this captures how we can often approach God. You see, both cats and dogs want obedience in their lives. Dog wants to obey God, and cats want God to obey, to obey them. Dogs worship God primarily for who he is, while cats enjoy what he's done for them. Dogs study theology. Cats study meology. And it's, it, it isn't easy to think that life is all about, about us. I mean, we, probably we, we just take that for granted that life's all about us. God doesn't exist for our benefits. We've been given good gifts for his glory. And I want us to, to look at a selected scripture of sur a survey of Adonijah and help us to get a proper priority and purpose back on track so that we can become like dogs instead of cats. Adonijah in the Old Testament. Adonijah is first used by Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 2, read for us very ably by Noel today. And our reading this morning, we read in verse 2, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You see, Abraham already knows God as Elohim, as creator, and the God most high, because we read in verse, for the previous chapter in verse 14, 22, but Abraham said to the king of Sodom with raised hands, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God, Elohim, God the most high creator of heaven and earth. But now in question two, or in, sorry, in verse two, Abraham begins to question this. He's, he calls him sovereign, sovereign Lord with his lips, but in his heart, he's filled with doubt. You see, God has promised him a son, but all he has is a servant. And in order to expand Abraham's view of Adonai, the Lord's sovereign, God takes him outside and verse five declares, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can't count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God's really saying, Abraham, since I placed the stars in heaven, do you think your childlessness is an insurmountable problem for me? And once Abraham was reminded of the bigness of God, Abraham believed the Lord. But then in verse 8, he yo-yos again. O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You see, Abraham is acknowledging his own insufficiency in light of God's sufficiency. He doesn't understand, but he, but he does use the name sovereign to communicate his commitment to living under the lordship of the Lord. And while at the same time, he has questions. And God then confirms his word by entering into an irrevocable covenant with Abraham. You see, Abraham was suffering from meology. When he didn't understand something or when things started getting difficult, in essence, he hissed like a cat at the creator. 
God was taking him through a process so that he could eventually learn that he is Lord and not Abraham. And you know, we have to come to that point as well. We have to come to the point where we realize that God is the Lord of all we own, all that we are, and all that we do. The sovereign Lord was teaching Abraham two truths that run through the entire Bible. The Lord owns everything, and we must obey the Lord. We could say it this way, because God has possession of me, I must be in submission to him. And since he is Lord, I must live under his lordship, his, his majesty and mighty. I am but a, a manager of the resources he has given me. I need to become more like a dog and less like a cat. I need to exist for the sovereign Lord. And this is summed up beautifully in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He's the owner, and I must obey him. In one of his recent books, a guy called Larry Crabb writes this. There are two basic, basic approaches to, to life, two pathways. One creates pressure, the other provides freedom. In the old way of life, you've decided that what you want most out of life is within your reach, and you're doing whatever you believe it takes to get it. But in the new way of life, you realize that you, what you most want is beyond your reach, and you're trusting God for the satisfaction you seek. You want Him, nothing else, not even in His blessing will do. When Queen Victoria had just ascended the throne, it was the custom of royalty when she went to the performance of the Messiah. So she went along and her advisors told her that she must not stand when the others stood at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. So when the choir belted out, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, she stayed seated with great difficulty. But when they proclaimed the Messiah as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the young queen rose and stood with her head bowed as if she would take off her own crown and cast it at his feet. She had learned about the lordship of the sovereign Lord. And much like Abraham eventually did. But if we, if we go further into the Old Testament, we come to a guy called Moses. And you know, it's interesting to note that Moses really rejects the Lord in many ways. Moses came face to face with the sovereign Lord. And when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses seemed to understand that God is a self-existence one, but still he struggles to submit to his sovereignty. You see, God has given them assignment. Do you remember he told them that he had to go to Pharaoh and speak to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go? Moses didn't want to do it. And his response is a very candid one in verse 10. He says, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue-tied. This is a real curious contradiction. You know, although Moses addressed God as Lord and acknowledged that he is his servant, but then attempts to excuse himself from obeying the Lord, 
based on his supposed inability. In verses 11 and 12, the Lord responds to Moses by reminding that since he is the creator who made him, he can certainly put words into his mouth. And you know, I often wish that Moses would just have surrendered at this point, but he didn't. Once again, he tries to avoid obedience. You see, he's acting more like a cat than a dog. In verse 13, he said, but Moses said, O Lord, please someone else, send someone else to do it. And God's anger burns against Moses because on the one hand, he confesses him as Lord, but on the other, he contradicts his, this confession with his lack of obedience. And we do the same thing, don't we? Be honest, we do the same thing. We call him Lord and live the way we want. Instead of living in hope, we prepare for the worst. You, God will not tolerate this. Jesus put it this way in Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You see, if we affirm his ownership, well, then we have to obey. And then later on in the Old Testament, we come to a guy called David. Now, David was devoted to his sovereign Lord. And one of the most frequent names used by David for God is the name Adonai. And in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 18 to 20, it appears four times in, in what he says. Well, who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of your house of your servant. In this, your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. You see, David recognized God's sovereignty and his role as a servant. And even though he is king, he acknowledges that the sovereign Lord owns everything. And as a result, he must obey him. You see, David understands the awesome power of the sovereign Lord when he writes in Psalm 114, verse 7, tremble the earth at the presence of the Lord. And then if we travel a wee bit further into the Old Testament, we come to a guy called Daniel. And Daniel addresses the sovereign Lord in confession. In Daniel 9, we come to a chapter of contrite confession when Daniel addresses the Lord 10 times in 17 verses. He owns up to the fact that he and his people have not been serving the sovereign Lord and instead have been selfishly serving their own interests. They were more like cats than dogs. Verse 19 says, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, and do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. See, in the Old Testament, those who called on the sovereign Lord were acknowledging his right to reign supreme. And the resultant responsibility all believers have is to serve the sovereign Lord. Since God owns everything, I must obey him. If we're going to call him Lord, then we better start living for him. And then we come to the New Testament. And the sovereign Lord, or Adonai, in the New Testament is there as well. It's carried over, and it's used of Jesus no less than 747 times. In the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to 
as the sovereign Lord 92 times, while he's called Savior just twice. You know, and I'm afraid sometimes in the evangelical church today, we are overemphasizing, if it's possible to do that, his role as Savior at the expense of his lordship. You know, we often create a falsehood by saying that someone can accept Jesus and not su submit to him as Lord. Look at some of these verses, Acts 2.21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the lordship of Jesus means that he has dominion, authority, sovereignty, and the right to rule over his creation, including you and me. And Jesus himself says that the verbal use of the word Lord is not enough. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's make no mistake this morning. Grace is not cheap. And we must resist the urge to spread the gospel of easy believism. I want to suggest some steps this morning that we can take right now, because it certainly isn't, it, it's, it's easy not to, it, it's not easy to accept him as Adonai and sovereign Lord and live under his will. First of all, we should serve sacrificially. Are we holding back in any way? Do you just serve when it's convenient? You see, it's time to give all to the sovereign Lord because he has given all to you. Remember the words of Joshua, who didn't care if others decided to live for the Lord or not. He said in Joshua 24, 15, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you're not in a ministry right now, determine to find one and begin serving. There are loads of opportunities here. You don't have to sit up here. You don't have to lead from the front. Lorcan's always looking for help. We're always looking for help with the young people. We're always looking for help with the bus. So if you're not serving today, get serving. Secondly, watch your words. We need to be very careful about using the name Lord if you're not interested in obeying him. You see, the very mention of his name should cause us to shudder if we're serving our own interests. So if we only have ourselves at heart and our own interests or our only concern, we should never use the word Lord. And some of us overuse his name even when we pray. Remember, to call him Lord means that we are serious about living in the light of his lordship. This wee poem challenged me. See if it challenges you. And with this we'll end. You call me light and see me not. 
You call me way and follow me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and acknowledge me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. You call me master and obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. And our third, we need to give generously. We need to to remind ourselves that what we have is from the Lord. And we need to make sure that he is master of all we own. And then surrenders to his sovereignty. The litmus test in determining if you're following Adonai is to ask yourself these questions. Have I surrendered everything to him? Since he owns everything, am I, to, am I obeying him? Am I a devoted dog or a cranky cat? It was Abraham Cooper who said, there is not an inch of any sphere of life of which Jesus Christ the Lord does not say, mine. Jesus is Lord, and everything I have belongs to him. Have you ever surrendered completely to him? Are you afraid to give yourself fully to him? I love what Andrew Murray said in this respect. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. I'm going to read that again. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life that is fully yielded to him. God is ready. Are you? Let's pray. Psalm 162 says, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's the confession of our heart today, Lord. You are Lord, and we are not. You are owner of everything. We are but managers of what you've given us. You are sovereign. We are servants. We are your possession. Therefore, we live in submission to you. Do with us what you may and what you must in order to make us more like your son, that we might serve you more fully this day and forevermore. Amen.